we started selling our 23-year-old sourdough starter, which was something that had never been done before. But then all of a sudden, you know, when we put it out there that, um, that this was available, I think we did about 480 tubs of starter in the first week. I didn't realise there were so many sourdough nerds out there. It was crazy. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Back in episode three... Jared Ingersoll stressed the importance of the local butcher, bakery and cafes and the role they play in the type of society we want moving forward. With restaurants forced into closure, our reliance on these important hubs of the community came to the fore and helped reignite food within communities. But these businesses have had their challenges throughout the pandemic and it's not all been smooth sailing. James White is the operations manager of Burke Street Bakery. James, how are you going? Good, thanks, Huck. How are you? I'm good. When the shutdown happened, many closed their doors and recalibrated, but Burke Street Bakery soldiered through. What were the challenges that you faced during that period when it all sort of happened? Mate, I suppose the greatest challenge was the unknown. Like, I still remember... You know, the day that David walked in the office, I think it was a Monday morning, in that week in the lead-up was, you know, to when everything all shut down and he'd sort of been out at family lunches over the weekend and um, quite a, a few of his family members are in the corporate world and they'd already started sending staff home and, and I remember he walked in on the Monday and he said, this is about to get real. And we sort of just sat there and, you know, started Googling everything and watching the New South Wales uh, health website numbers just tick over like a meter, just roll over. And then we sort of had to, you know, stop and say, listen, what are we going to do? You know, and I suppose you had to sort of get into a mode of management that we'd never done before. And for our place, you know, we sort of sat there and went, all right, we've got 12 bakeries, two production facilities, two bakeries inside Harris Farm, an admin department, and then a logistics crew. So we've got 18 departments that are so unique. So we've just got to start breaking these down one by one and work out, what it is that we do to keep all of these rolling and um you know the main one that we sort of went was like we didn't know if we were going to be the next guys that had to shut down you know so we we sort of thought well bread will be the only thing that will be safe so the main thing we're to do is work out how we can continue continue to produce bread and that was what we did we tried to really break a you know a team you know in the bakery in production here we, we work 24 hours a day 364 days a year so to all of a sudden try and break that into a, a team where we had two separate teams of people who had mirror images in skill base, could then not even see each other, but continue to make product. Um, that was like, you know, the biggest textures puzzle we've ever seen. And David and the production guys did an amazing job to make it happen. What were some of the operational issues that you faced um, with being open and you know many other places being shut and the whole of society sort of in that mode of feeling like everything is shut down yeah that's that's an interesting question it's pretty funny I so on when it when everything sort of really started to hit over that weekend the following monday i had 12 calls from all of our stores going listen our garbage bins hadn't been emptied so something that we took for granted every day had stopped you know and then eventually we found out that the you know the garbos had just said listen we've got no idea who's open who's closed you know they couldn't afford to be paying drivers to drive around to places that weren't open so they just ceased everything so even little things like that started and then the 
then the calls started coming in from the suppliers. You know, listen, you know, we got, we don't know if we're going to be able to stay open. You know, what sort of you know commitment can you give us for produce and all of those sorts of things over the coming weeks? So, all of a sudden, things that just happened automatically had all of a sudden become an issue. And um, you know, supply of goods wasn't too bad. It was all just about making sure our lines of communication were great with everyone. Um, you know, but the big thing for us was. You know, how do we keep these doors open and ensure that our staff are safe, our customers are safe, and we can afford to pay the bills? That was the three things we had to cover. As you mentioned sort of earlier, you've got multiple sites. Um, were, were they impacted differently? Because they're all in different sort of areas for different reasons, catering to different um, um, sectors of the market. Was, it, was there multiple layers in the impact on you guys? Yeah, there certainly was. We've probably got... You know, I suppose we've got three stores that are really, you know, based in central business in business districts. Like that was Barangaroo, North Sydney and Parramatta. And they got super quiet overnight. You know, as soon as all of the banking and everything closed their doors, you know, those guys really, you know, went not to zero, but they weren't they weren't too far off it. Um, thankfully, reasonably quickly, some of the more suburban stores like Newtown uh, Bowmain, Marrickville, those sort of guys started to, to trade reasonably well, you know, or just, you know, at least as usual. And I think, you know, that was a lot of guys were at home, working from home in those suburban areas. And so thankfully, you know, the slight increase in those areas, um, you know, that, that really enabled us just to keep going. You mentioned earlier about that you, you felt that bread um, would play an important role you know, and it's often described as a as a staple. Did that did that prove to be true during the pandemic for you guys? Yeah, certainly, certainly. You know, and I suppose you know we all lived through those ridiculous times of you know that panic buy, and you know you saw we saw what guys were doing, you know, with toilet paper, and and that week when everything was going crazy, our bread sales were bigger than they'd ever been. Um, every store had sold out of bread by lunchtime each day, and. You know that was a that was another challenge in itself. We were sort of sitting there every day. We'd meet in the morning, David and I, trying to work out what was what the next day would hold, and you know, do we, you know, do we up the trying up the levels of production, which was obviously already a battle because we had those split production teams and everything, and then was this going to go on? Was this you know this crazy buying? Is everyone just going to keep freezing bread and doing whatever they've got to do? Um, you know, but it certainly was, you know, it was very, very solid throughout that whole period, just the bread. And, you know, it was something that was, you know, we had no idea. We really had no idea. With that sort of mode of consumers sort of panic buying and um, changing what they what they do every day, did that impact on, you know, the beautiful pastries and some of the other products that you would normally offer to the market? Oh, I- we had it. There was a couple of things that changed, like the pastries along with the along with the sourdough, especially like at our Harris Farm bakeries and all that sort of stuff, are things that had never been inside plastic before. So consumers all of a sudden had this level of expectation where, you know, it's almost safety outweighed quality, if that makes sense. You know, there was a, a level of expectation to just give us the food safe. We don't really care if. You know, a plastic bag certainly not a great environment for any baked good, but they'd rather buy it out of that because they knew they they had it, it had a you know perceived you know idea that that was safer than 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 what it would be if it wasn't packaged. 
you know, we sort of, we had a little bit of an issue around volume and mainly because it fell right at Easter time as well. So all of a sudden we had to try and add in, you know, 50,000 hot cross buns to production and trying to do it on a skeleton staff and all that sort of stuff. So we, we weren't able to make as many buns as what we had previous, which sort of ruffled a few customers' feathers. But, you know, most of the people were sort of super happy to even, you know, see us still there and, you know, be able to get some sort of product from us. Now, I know you've been heavily involved with Colin Fasnidge and the soup kitchen uh, that he created for hospitality staff um, and people on working visas um, out of jobs. Can you Can you tell us a bit about your involvement there? Yeah, that was, you know, it was really, you know, it was Colin's baby and, you know, full credit's got to go to him. The selflessness that he showed in that period was unbelievable. You know, a lot of us, everyone's sort of there thinking, going, what about me? What am I going to do next? What, you know, what was a real individual-based mentality in that first couple of weeks, I, I believe. But he, you know, knew we had, a, a, you know, a few pubs full of food that wasn't going to be able to go anywhere. He's looking through his books and having a look at the guys who he's got on the books and, you know, these guys aren't going to be able to get any help and thought the best thing he could do was, you know, knock up some food. But the pubs all, I think he mentioned in his one, all the pubs were having the power turned off the following Monday. So he gave us a ring and said, listen, have you guys got any frozen storage space? And we said, yeah, no problems at all. So we took all the food that, that he'd prepared, you know, and there's been some amazing producers who all of a sudden also didn't have markets for their products who said, listen, we'd rather give it to you guys and throw it out as well. So they all sent the food to us. So we just sort of become a bit of the, you know, the storage hub. And then what we were doing is, you know, any bread that wasn't getting sold on the day, and we did a bit of an overbake, and, you know, so we were baking off a couple of hundred loaves extra, freezing them each day, and then storing those. So then whenever he was heading out, as well as all the gear that had been dropped from some of the great producers, you know, we added hundreds of loaves of bread into that. And it was just, you know, cause we were sort of thinking our guys are going to be in the same boat if we're the next to close. Because like most guys in our industry, you know, we've got so many students and things like that. And, you know, so it's just, it was nice to be able to do a little bit. Being operations manager of a group like this would have its challenges generally, but, but you know, throwing a pandemic, um, what's, it, what's it been like for you personally this last couple of months? You know, I suppose the the fact that it had never been done, nothing like this has ever, like we've ever seen before. So there was no, there was almost like there was no fear um, in the lead up to it because, you know, there was just no expectation or anything. And I, the, the big part, I suppose, for us, you know, we've got 200 staff. So we had 200 staff then that didn't know what was going on either. And the, you know, as I said before, we used to meet every morning and just try and work on a plan for that day. You know, because we had no idea if we we're going to be here in three days' time or what it was. So we just had to really, you know, as I said, look at all of our 18 cost centres each day and just really break it down. You know, what's important? What, you know, what do we not have to worry about? You know, and then based on, we're getting, you know, getting, as everyone was, we're getting different feedback every single day from the, the authorities about what you could do, what you couldn't do. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the big one was at Surrey Hills, you know, because that's a busy bakery any time and then with a lot of the neighboring guys that all closed down you can imagine i got a phone call from there one morning saying listen it's absolutely mayhem outside here we're trying to keep two people in the bakery so i raced over to bunnings and bought a heap of line marking tape and started all that process you know so it was just just crazy we just didn't know so i'm there measuring out 1.5 meters all the way up the road doing it and then literally as soon as the lines were there within minutes this sort of level of calm came over everyone and it was um you know, it sort of almost became the norm super quickly. You know, we had 
you know, a lot of staff with different requirements. You know, there's guys that live at home with their elderly parents who say, I can't come into work. And, you know, other guys saying, listen, I've, you know, there's so many things like that that we had to manage just on an individual basis. You know, literally we work seven days a week for three months just managing that. You've been in the food industry for um, quite a long time and involved with some incredible um, companies and operators and um can, can you tell us how you got started in the industry? And yeah, yeah, mate. I'm actually, I'm actually, I've got an engineering background. I'm an electrical fitter by trade. Just to work in my dad's engineering oh, shop. Really? Yeah, yeah. And um, that 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 family business got sold oh, back in the late '90s. And then I sort of wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Like I did have a, I had a real passion for food. I was very fortunate. My two grandmothers both cooked for a living, and so I sort of had that little bit of inbuilt, you know, desire to head down that path and. I was sort of flumming around, not doing too much, doing a little bit of work in a bottle shop. And a mate who had a few milk runs said to me, listen, I need a, I need a guy to come and work on the, the King's Cross and Potts Point milk runs of a morning. So I went and did that for two years, which was a pretty wild old pretty wild old adventure and learned a lot more in two years than what I had done previously. <laughs> but I, um, there was an old fellow who had a little tiny fresh cheese run in the same area. And I used to see him every morning and would have a chat, but he was always struggling I think he sort of liked the bottle a little bit too much. And I said to him, if you're ever ready to give the game away, let me know. And a couple of months later, the phone rings. And it was him and he said, mate, I'm, I want to sell my little run. And and that was it. So I, I I bought his little van and he had 20 customers. All he sold was fresh cheese. And, and that was the birth of James Food, which became two providors. And, you know, I sort of, I sort of thought far out. Here's this little, I had blonde hair back then. Um, this blonde-haired kid from the beach all of a sudden, you know, trying to sell Italian-style cheeses to cafes and stuff in Sydney. And it was something that I really, really studied hard and, you know, just learned as much as I could about every ingredient and, you know, tried to really try to add value into the market. At the time, you know, the two of the best providors in Sydney would have been Simon Johnson and Australia, Australia on a Plate. And they were both sort of vying over that real top end of the market. You know, so that was when fine dining was still really prevalent and, you know, they were all, always vying for that. But there was no one that was really, you know, sort of selling those style of ingredients down into the middle level of the market. And, you know, and that was what, you know, really became my ethos for the next 10 years was to make great food accessible to all levels. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, like you'd be lucky to find goat's cheese on a cafe menu. You know, and now you wouldn't be able to walk into a cafe without seeing those sort of ingredients gracing everyone's menus these days and you know so that was a big part of what I did for a long time was really passionate about helping little you know met so many little producers at markets and helped them get to market in a wholesale scale and you know it was something that I really really loved doing. What did you learn about the food business in the early days that still sticks with you? Oh honesty is the best policy you know you can't there's no point trying to sell an ingredient as, a, as something that's amazing if it's not you know, and always, always deliver what you promise. When you're a provador, you know, you've got to make sure that, you know, these guys, you know, their livelihood is depending on, you know, the promises you've made about the ingredients you can deliver. So just make sure that, you know, you just, you know, you just do whatever you can to make sure that happened. And that was, you know, that was how we grew a little tiny business into something that was quite substantial and reasonably successful. Well, two providors is um, an amazing um, gift yeah, so the the guys that own the guys that own it now took over in 2012. The business had sort of outgrown myself then, and um, 
they've done an amazing job. You know, they've really, really great infrastructure and they've still got some of the same ethos caring for the produ- producers and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, every time I see a two-provador truck driving around, it really still puts a little smile on my face. What small producers did you help in the early days uh, that you're proud of? Oh, one of the, the guys who was really, and I suppose they, they weren't all that small, but um, Meredith Dairies was one which was fantastic for us. Um, the, you know, they were guys that really understood how to scale up and how to do all of those things. They were fantastic. You know, mate, there's so many that we, you know, had to really, you know, lots of little small goods producers, you know, and then even into the later days, like with the, you know, well, Peppy Sayer, I worked with extensively at the start um, because, um, yeah, that was, he, I actually used to supply him butter to make his desserts. He had his dessert business before he had Peppy. And then um, I think I, I think I actually was charging him too much for butter at one stage. That's why he went out and started making his own. And, and now he's become <laughs> the world's most famous butter maker. So I was probably, you know, he probably should send me a thank you for that. Oh, well, it's on record now, so he'll, he'll hear it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You haven't, uh, you've been in um, at Burke Street Bakery just for the last couple of years, um, but you do have connections to them many moons ago. Um, can you tell us about those early days? Yeah, yeah, certainly. When they, it was about, actually, we we just turned 16 on Saturday. Oh, wow. Believe it or not. So it's the yeah, the 16th anniversary of Burke Street was last Saturday. And um, so it would have been just uh, may may 2004 i received a call from the boys i was a provador then and they said listen we just want to have a chat to you about about we're opening a little bakery in surrey hills we've got no idea if it's going to work but we just want to try this little you know this little concept we've gotten so i went in there and met with them and it was this little tiny terrace and walked upstairs and literally in the room was a bucket a milk crate and there was one other thing it was a paint tin so the three of us sat on these three items and we just sort of chewed the fat a bit and they said, we need some cream, we need this flour, we need all that. And, and I sort of, they were going, but we don't know if it's going to work. They were so humble and, you know, I suppose concerned like any new business business owners would. And then the next thing, David's wife walks up the stairs with three cups and said to the boys, here, here's a cup each and here's one more in case you ever employ anyone. <laughs> and it was almost 14 years to the day. Wow. 14 years to the day later that I came on board. Um, and I was about number employee at the time, 197, I think it was on the books at the time. And um, yeah, so it was pretty, it was a nice little full circle um, thing. You know, I sort of understand, stood the business really well. You know, I love the ethos of the business and how, you know, it was still so true to what they were in 2004, still today. You know, we make every pie by hand, every sausage roll by hand. You know, everything's still done the same way, just on a slightly bigger scale. Burke Street Bakery is famous for its pies and sausage rolls. What did you do to make them more available to the general public? Well, when when the pandemic sort of really gripped, we sort of were thinking, what what you know, how are we going to continue to raise revenue? You know, if the obviously all of the sort of dining had stopped and everything, what are we going to do? And you know. It had always been the thought pattern of David and Paul that, you know, if you wanted to buy a Burke Street pie and sausage roll, you know, you have to buy it in one of our stores, baked by one of our bakers. That was always how they wanted the experience to be. But I I said to David, listen, I I think this mightn't be a bad idea. Let's try and, you know, how about we try and sell these frozen to people um, so that when they're coming in to grab their, 
you know, grab their extra bread and doing all those things that they get the opportunity to take these pies and sausage rolls home. We'll give them an instruction leaflet and let them try and bake them on their own. And, you know, it turned in, it was, it was reasonably successful, you know, and people really appreciated that, you know, to be able to throw some stuff in the freezer and it's still working well now. So it's still something we're doing across every store. And, you know, the other interesting one on that was we, we started selling our 23-year-old sourdough starter. Wow. Which was something that had never been done before. Has the other bakeries been lining up to get it? Oh, well, you know, you could get it previously when we used to do, we used to do uh, baking masterclasses every Saturday, and you could always get it then as part of the baking class. But it wasn't, you know, that was like you know ten people a week. But then all of a sudden, you know, when we put it out there that um, that this was available, I think we did about four hundred and eighty tubs of starter in the first week. Wow! I didn't realise there were so many sourdough nerds out there. It was crazy. <laughs> and then we started um, we started doing those Instagram videos of George. George is the name of our starter and, you know, just the following and just the feedback and love and all that that, you know, everyone stuck at home got out of those videos was unbelievable. And it was a really nice release for David and I as well, you know, to stop thinking about, you know, what's going on out there and just worry about trying to make a, an, a you know, an entertaining and, and informative video for people to, you know, learn a little bit more about Sauto. It was a great release for us as well. You guys could be responsible for that massive boom in sourdough production at home during the pandemic oh mate i don't know if we're responsible but we certainly would have added a little bit to it how was the bread that they made it at home didn't have you got any sort of information back we ran a few we ran a few um we ran a few little competitions and some of the photos and all that sort of stuff it was world class i i sent a few i sent a few notes back to people offering them jobs i think most of them <laughs> thought i was joking but honestly if they would have taken it up they'd be out the back in an apron right now what do you think is underlying the success of Burke Street Bakery? There has been an absolute boom of sourdough and a love of pastries in the last decade, but they've really been at the, the forefront of that. I really think just the fact that they still do things the same way, you know. Um, although, you know, Paul's over in New York in our New York store now, but David's still here every day. Every day is in, in the office, in production, you know, and they're still making things the same way. Never cut corners on ingredients, never rush time, never do any of those things. You know, we still slow ferment where slow ferment's needed, always buying the best ingredients. And, you know, that's what we've done. You know, we've never got into wholesaling. We've always just concentrated on, you know, supplying the best quality products we can through our stores. And, you know, and that that's, and I suppose that's probably in a way, you know, we're not the coolest kids on the block anymore. There's, there's guys out there doing you know much fancier product but we've really just stayed true to what we've what we've what we've always been and and just you know just do it consistently well it's been a pretty challenging uh period uh for all of your locations and all of your staff but what have been the lessons for burke street bakery during the pandemic i suppose that the big one was about how we can manage production on smaller teams and split teams that was very interesting um, because it was something that we'd never probably even given any thought to before. That was that was probably the most important one. Um, obviously, just that you know that sanitising and hand washing and all that stuff, which we're always on about anyway. But it's almost like it's become second nature now. Whereas you know guys are just constantly, constantly washing and you know and it's you know and that's been really, really good. At you know as I said, we've always had great hygiene practices, but it's almost like it's stepped up to another level again. Um, 
And I suppose from a customer service point of view, we spoke about this a lot about how, you know, we're going to get opportunities to speak to customers that we've never spoken to before, you know, because we were lucky enough to stay open. So all of a sudden, we're going to have this vast new array of people who've maybe never been to Burke Street before. So we're only going to get one chance to impress these guys. And we won't be able to do it with, you know, flashy table service or whatever. So we just got to make sure that, you know, our pies and our pastries are going to be the best pie and pastry these people have eaten. And then when they come back the next time, it's going to rival that time. And also that our coffee is spot on each and every time. And so we really just, you know, spoke a lot about to our to our management team just about the, you know, the importance of making a good impression with these guys under trying circumstances. You know, it's going to be hard on them. People are lining up. People have really got to wait patiently, you know, so make sure as soon as they get to the counter, they're, great, they're greeted with the biggest smile they've seen all day and make sure that, you know, they're, that they're really, really happy with the service that they do get and the products are outstanding. You've got many friends across the hospitality sector and they've been doing it pretty tough, uh, particularly in restaurants and cafes. Um, have you ever had any conversations or um, with anyone like sort of close to you and um, what, what's your feelings about the industry at the moment? Mate, to be honest, when it all happened, it was a really, really bizarre feeling. You know, like I almost felt like this level of guilt you know, I was still getting up and going to work every day when most of my peers weren't. And it was just a bizarre feeling. And, you know, and I and I would speak to, you know, a few of the boys and, you know, I spoke to, you know, Colin was probably the one I spoke to the most through all of this because we were doing a few little things together and doing his cooking show together of, an, of a Friday night and stuff. And, you know, I suppose my thing for them was, listen, is there anything we can do to help, you know? what What can we do as guys that are still operating? And, you know, thankfully he had a few young guys who weren't eligible for anything so we took those on and we put those guys in a pastry section here and gave them a job um and you know so there was a few other things like that you know just about you know really we just had to keep our eyes on on what we were doing make sure we continue to do it well and the big thing was not to get complacent as things started to soften as well you know like we were making sure that the compliance was being met you know with such diligence that you know it didn't matter even we were overcompensating on the compliance side of things um but yeah as i say on a personal thing on a personal note it was really you know i was just chatting to people making sure everyone's all right you know and just you know you couldn't even go and share a beer but i shared a, a few beers over zoom meetings with a few guys and you know just just really just you know just checking in all the time and you know, and just just trying to stay positive, I suppose. With you know, and you know, in, in just at least put a little bit of sunshine around. You know, what's your thoughts about the future, particularly with sort of hubs of the community and you know the roles that a local butcher or bakery might play? Do you think that you know coming out of the pandemic, that's something that we're all going to want a bit more in our little own communities? I, I truly hope so. Um, you know, and you sort of, you know any of us that had to go out and do some shopping, you know, in those tough times, you know, you walk into some of them big supermarkets and you're sort of thinking far out, if I'm ever going to catch this thing, I'm going to catch it in here, you know? And I, I really think, you know, there's opportunities for us now to, you know, just to sort of show that little bit of loyalty to the community. And, and I, you know, I sort of think we were, we were very lucky. And the, the, one of the reasons why is that, you know, a pie or a sausage roll, you know, taste as good, if not better, out of a brown paper bag as it does on a plate. 
And it's not better, yeah. Yeah, mate, it's really, it's true. You think about it, think about the best sausage roll you've ever tasted. I bet it was out of a bag. And, you know, that sort of thing, we haven't put seats back into most of our bakeries now because the takeaway model is is sort of working efficiently at the moment. Um, on, you know, because we can't have a counter full of staff at the back either. We've really got to try and run that quite lean. And I really, you know, I sort of, I hope that, that people understand how important it is, you know. And we had, you know, one of my managers said to me one day, he said, mate, do you know if I'm going to catch this thing, I'm going to catch it at work. I'm doing everything right at home, you know. So this is where we're going to catch it. So I suppose, you know, and most people really accepted that and were thankful that that the staff members were really sort of, you know, going above and putting themselves at risk to make sure that we still provided the service. And the other thing that it's done is, you know, everyone that's gone out and tried to make a loaf of sourdough at home and seen, you know, how it's a four-day process and what goes into it, they certainly aren't going to whinge when it's time to pay $7.50 for a loaf of bread from now on. So during the pandemic, comfort food became very important. Is there something at Burke Street Bakery that uh, is a guilty pleasure of yours? Oh, mate, have you seen my side profile? Is that why you're asking? <laughs> I've literally smashed on about five kilos, I think. The... Um, it is so hard to walk past that pie warmer 25 times a day and not to have a little nibble. I've um, convinced myself that every taste I take is just purely for research purposes. But, <laughs> mate, I think the um, the lamb and harissa sausage roll and probably the flourless chocolate cake are two of my two of my favourites. Oh, damn! But there's not you know you really you can't you can't go wrong, mate. In all honesty, you know the pork and fennel is delicious. The, you know it's yeah. It's a, it's a tough choice, so it's a tough problem to have. I'm a sucker for those sausage rolls, and um, now that you know, I'm not in Sydney anymore, they're definitely something that I miss from the Newtown store Yeah. Um, on the way to the office that I used to have. Well, mate, you, your waistline might be the benefit, might, might be benefiting from that. <laughs> oh, don't worry. There's other, there's other things I've been indulging in, so the, my waistline is ruined forever, I think. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> mate, uh, so good to chat again. Um, really awesome to have you on the show. Keep in touch and we'll touch base later in the year and see how you're traveling. But um, thanks for a great chat. No, thank you. And listen, thanks to you and Rob. You know, what you guys have been doing to, you know, just to give us something to listen to every week and just to hear that, you know, for good or bad, we're sort of all in the same boat to some degree. And, you know, it gives us a little bit of comfort. So thanks. Thanks to you guys for doing such a great job on that. And I'll, um, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>